There we go. All right. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these songs to sing. We thank you for Christmas time and for the time we have every year to get to meditate on the wonder of the incarnation. Lord, it is our, our heart's cry and, and praise that Christ has come, Emmanuel has come, and we look forward to the day when he will come again. Help us, Lord, to be found faithful when you come. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the opportunity now to turn to your word. And I pray, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, may um, my words be helpful, but may it be your word that we hear as we look into the scripture. Thank you for this time, and we commit it to you for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening, friends. It is my joy and privilege to be with you tonight to lead us in our study of God's Word together. Please turn or tap your way to the book of Joel. If you find Daniel or Hosea, just keep going. Uh, But if you hit Amos, Obadiah, or Jonah, you've gone too far. So the book of Joel. And as you're getting there, I want to say that Christine and I miss being with y'all. We're really glad to be back with you, and uh, be sure to go say hi to, uh, to her and to Henry um, out there and the other kids when they come up later. But we are so um, blessed to, to be here tonight, and I, uh, for one, am glad to get to have had the privilege of studying this amazing book. Tonight, we continue in our Roots 66 series, and we are in the stretch of the journey through the Old Testament that we've arrived to, or you've arrived to the section known as the minor prophets. That's minor because of their relative length in proportion to the major prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, not minor because they are somehow unimportant or even less important than the other books of the Old Testament. You know, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture, and that includes the minor prophets. I know in my own understanding of God's word, I perhaps know the minor prophets the least of all of the books of the Bible, and maybe that would describe your interaction with them as well. But friends, as you saw last time in Hosea, As we will see tonight and through the rest now of the Old Testament, these books written to Old Testament Israel over 2,000 years ago, these are precious treasures for our souls. We need the minor prophets. And specifically, I hope tonight to help us see that we need the book of Joel. It is God's good gift to us. To us, mostly Gentile Christians living in Texas in AD 2023. If you look at the book of Joel and you read through it, you will probably notice that it focuses much on something called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord can even be used as the short summary theme for this book. 
The, the day of the Lord is a concept that's already been mentioned in the prophets. It's mentioned in Isaiah 13.9 and a couple times in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 13.5 and Ezekiel 33. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, points to expressions of God's judgment on sin culminating in the final day of the Lord and at the final judgment when Jesus Christ, God the Son, returns to judge the living and the dead. There is coming the day of the Lord. That's what this book is all about and more, as we will see. The book of Joel is written by, any guesses? Joel, whoever said that, well done. Whoever said. Now, in, in case you were wondering which Joel we're talking about, this is Joel, the son of Pethuel. So that clarifies it in case you were wondering which other Joel wrote this. It's that one. Um, and that's pretty much all we know about this prophet. His name, Joel, means Yahweh is God, the one true and living God. He is God. But the reason, even though we don't know really anything about Joel, the reason this book is in Scripture is because, verse 1, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. So we need this because these are God's words that Joel then delivered to the people. Now, whom, to whom and when did he deliver these words? Well, Based on reference points in the text, such as mentions of Jerusalem and the temple, and the fact that there's no references to the rampant idolatry of the northern kingdom, it seems that the immediate audience of this prophecy was the Jewish people living in Jerusalem and Judah. But at what time? And if, if you look through the book, and even there at the beginning, you don't see any sort of description of the word of the Lord came to Joel in the days of and listing some king's name, and there's not really other, very many specific date reference markers, and so there's a difference of opinion among scholars as to when this was written. So depending on where you look, if you look at the ESV study Bible, it leans toward a date uh, closer to the return from the Babylonian exile, while the MacArthur study Bible leans toward a date uh, near the late 9th century BC, around the reign of King um, Joash of Judah. So a, a, a range of time where this could be written, but while the book of Joel, and this is important to note, while the book of Joel relates real events in past and in future history, the lack of a specific dating of Joel given to us doesn't significantly, significantly impact its interpretation. I like what the MacArthur Study Bible states where it says the message of Joel is timeless, forming doctrine which could be repeated and applied in any age. So don't let the sort of the missing other clues uh, in any way diminish the reliability or the necessity or the worth of this amazing revelation of God. And while it does focus much on the day of the Lord, the book of Joel does more than just give a prophecy about judgment, which it does. It gives the bad news. But it gives really good news as well. I've titled our lesson for tonight, if you're taking notes, The Gospel According to Joel. The Gospel According to Joel. I don't know when was the last time you were thinking about, I wonder where I could find in Scripture to kind of describe and relate 
uh, the good news, the problem of sin, the need for repentance, and the hope of mercy before the Lord for those who call upon him. If you've ever thought about that, have you ever thought of turning to the book of Joel? You should, because as we will see tonight, uh, what as I hope you will see is the theme of our lesson, which is this. If you look at the book of Joel, what should come out, what I think comes out is this, that the certainty of judgment on sinners at the day of the Lord, which we will see, so there's a certainty of judgment on sinners at the day of the Lord, that should motivate us all to turn in repentance toward God, who is compassionate and gracious toward those who call out to him. So in this book, we will see the certainty of judgment on sinners at something called the day of the Lord. And the certainty of that fact and the magnitude of it should motivate us, call us to turn to the Lord for whose day it is, to turn to God in repentance because God is compassionate and gracious toward those who cry out to him. We see in this book precious truths at the heart of the gospel that we as Christians know and love. In Joel, we see things like the seriousness of sin and its consequences, a call to repentance, God's kind mercy to the penitent, the overabundance of God's gracious blessings to his people, and a sure hope that God himself will come to make all things right. As the hymn says, the wrong shall fail the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So, as we look into this and as we begin to work our way through the text, before we begin, I want you to be on the lookout for something. Notice as we walk through the text how the book of Joel is full of contrasts and reversals, reflecting what I think are some of the reversals that mark the gospel. For those who trust in the Lord... For those who trust and call upon the Lord and trust in the Lord, the devastation of sin is contrasted with the delights of grace. Barrenness is replaced with fruitfulness. Separation from God's goodness gives way to fellowship in his presence. We see wrath, but also restoration. Horrors, but also hope. Justice, but also joy in this wonderful yet short book. So all of these contrasts, all of this, the purpose of the day of the Lord unfolds in three key sections of this prophecy. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of outline the book in these ways. Three key sections to this revelation showing the certainty of judgment on sinners and how that should motivate repentance. The three sections would, could be titled, uh, firstly, the day of the Lord previewed. That's chapter 1, verse 1 through 20. Secondly, you see the day of the Lord promised in chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And thirdly, the day of the Lord performed, chapter 2, verse 18 through verse three, uh, chapter 3, 21, so the end of the book. I'll say those again in case you didn't get those. But just so you know where we're going. The day of the Lord previewed, promised, and performed. So let's look first at the beginning of this book, the day of the Lord previewed. And in this preview, we see a picture of sin and its consequences. The day of the Lord previewed, a picture of sin. Look, at, look with me in your copy of God's word as I read. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. 
Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. This revelation is about to tell of something serious, something so bad that generations after generations need to be speaking about it. Something is going on that is serious, and what is that? We find in the verses that follow, a devastating plague has hit the land of Judah. Look there in verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. It's a lot of locusts in that verse. Locusts that are gnawing, swarming, creeping, stripping. The, the point of this is that these locusts, this plague of locusts that has descended upon the, the land of Judah has brought total devastation. So from the first group of locusts, if anything was left, the second group gets that. And if there's anything left, the third group said that. And if there's anything left, the fourth group gets that. There is nothing left. What we see here is practical blessings upon God's people have been removed. And this is a cause of mourning and weeping, as you see continuing on in verse 5. Joel says, Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land. These locusts are depicted as a, as a nation, as an army that has descended upon them. Look, uh, continuing in verse 5, mighty and without number, its teeth are like the teeth of a lion and its fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. They have gnawed down these trees and these branches down to the core. Total devastation. Verse 8, wail like a virgin girthed with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Wail as though someone who has lost their love at the, at the point of their wedding. That deep wailing, mourning. Why? Because, verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. I don't think we feel the full impact of this uh, in a land where there is HEB and Central Market and Costco where there is like basic, if you ever think about some of our modern grocery stores sort of being like a museum to food that you can then take stuff home with you, we have so much abundance. But if you think about the people living in the land of Israel, if you don't have grain, you don't live. That's the staple of your diet. If you don't have wine, you, you lose some of the flavor of life. If you don't have oil, you lose some of the, the cooking material as also things that they would use for light. Oil, wine, grain, these are the core of their sustenance, and it's demolished. It is wiped out. 
But not only that, if you remember the sacrifices that God instructed his people, gave them. Uh, I was listening to uh, when Josh Sherrill gave this message, and I really uh, appreciated the way he phrased this, of uh, God providing all the things that they needed to worship and enjoy him. God had provided all of that and made it part of their worship, but they couldn't do that because it was gone. Amazing devastation. As a result of this plague, all these good practical things are lost. And as we see the, the, these conditions, they were a result of sin on the part of the people. Why, why do I say that? We're not particularly told what specifically what sins were going on, but it's clear from the, the coming call to repentance that repentance, what was needed in response to the plague. You see the plague, you see the call for repentance, that, that points to the fact that there was something, sin, needing to be repented of. Furthermore, for Old Testament Israel, God set up his people in the land in such a way that the physical state of their land was an indicator, a a barometer, a thermometer of the condition of their relationship to God and their faithfulness to the covenant. Turn um, briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's been a few uh, weeks and we've slept since we looked at Deuteronomy last, um, some months ago. Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, we see, as the covenant is being rehearsed, we see blessings for obedience to the covenant and promises of curses for for when the nation of Israel turns away from the Lord in disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 15. The Lord says, uh, but, it com- but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What are some of those curses? Jump down to verse 24, Deuteronomy 28, 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Instead of water coming down from the sky, dust is falling. The water is disrupted and the rain is gone. Jump down to verse 38 through 40. Deuteronomy 28, 38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have oil trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. Grain, wine, and oil. The fact that these are missing, back in Joel chapter 1, the fact that these are gone should have been and was a warning to the people that they were under the judgment of God because of disobedience. But not only practical blessings were removed, as I mentioned, their ability to worship and enjoy God has been destroyed. Look at Joel 1.13. He continues, Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders, stop what you're doing. We need to deal with this. Gather, everyone, come, and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. This is serious. We need to gather because of this. Verse 15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Here we have the first mention of this 
uh, really the first mention of this day of the Lord in the book of Joel. This real event, this real plague of locusts and the devastation that it brings is a preview of the ultimate day of the Lord that will come. They were in themselves the day of the Lord, an expression of God's judgment on disobedience, but only a small foretaste, a small preview, the the five-second clip that comes before the, the main feature. Destruction is coming from the Almighty. Verse 16, has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. Continues on talking about the the seeds, the barns are torn down, the grain is dried up, the beasts grown, the cattle wander aimlessly, there's no pasture for them. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I cry. Joel just cries out in the midst of this. I cry to you, O Lord. Why? For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. So not only is there locusts, but there is fire and drought. Verse 20, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The day of devastation of the locusts was terrible. It was accompanied by drought and fire. This is a picture of the coming day of the Lord. On the other side of this plague was a preview, a foretaste of the horrors to come in the great tribulation and the final day of the Lord at the end of all things as we see elsewhere in Scripture. See the picture. The land of Israel is desolate, dry, fire, No good green thing. What a picture of the consequences of sin. There is no good in sin. Only desolation and judgment. That's the day of the Lord previewed. And if it stopped there, God would be just and the prophecy could end there with all of the people mourning because of the desolation. But it doesn't end there. We go secondly and see the second section here, the day of the Lord promised. The day of the Lord promised, which contains a precious call to repentance. The day of the Lord promised where we will see a call to repentance, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The day of the Lord, a day of the Lord in the future, is coming. Chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Get everyone's attention. Get it to a high place. Sound the alarm. Why? The day of the Lord is coming. It's not possible. It's not that it might happen. Uh, It might happen one day. But the picture here is that it's, it's coming. It's at the very gate. It's just over the rise. It's right there. The day of the Lord is coming surer than tomorrow is coming. And the day of the Lord is terrible, verse 2. The day of the Lord, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. This day is terrible. 
And not only that, the day of the Lord is unstoppable. What we're about to see continue from verse 3 onwards for a while, the Lord is going to, or the, the, the prophet, the Lord through his prophet, is going to give us a depiction of the coming day of the Lord described as a great army that is approaching. And the point of this section is to show that the day of the Lord cannot be stopped. Look at verse 3. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With the noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arrayed for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they march. They each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march, every one in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? That is a scary picture. That is meant, that is a scary picture. We should see this as a terrifying picture. The army is coming. They're coming rank upon rank like a swarm of locusts coming. It is coming. You can't stop it. You can't deviate them from the path. They are coming. You can't put up a barrier. They will climb over the barrier. It is coming. It is coming. The with cataclysmic signs even in the heavens. The locusts in chapter 1 were described using army-like imagery. Here, using locust-like imagery, Joel is painting the picture of the coming day of the Lord. There's some question about exactly who this army is. Is it a, is it a human army? There, there is a human army that is going to be gathering in chapter 3. Is it a reference to the army of demons unleashed in the tribulation in Revelation 9? If you read that passage, there's a lot of similarities to to Joel uh, chapter 2. Even regardless, though, of the specific identity of this army, the point is clear. The coming judgment of the day of the Lord will be awesome. And not awesome in the sense of we're like, awesome, but awesome in the sense of, ah, awesome, scary, frightening, make you stop, make you go pale, scary and awesome. It will come like an unstoppable, overwhelming, devastating army leaving desolation in its path. And you can't overcome it and you can't defeat it. So using this picture of a locust invasion, we see the coming of the day of the Lord will be severe. And notice the end of verse 11. The end of verse 11. And who can endure it? Who can endure it? The answer is no one. It cannot be endured. And yet, and yet, I love the word yet in Scripture. Verse 12, we see, in light of this darkness, 
coming, destruction, a call to repentance. A call to repentance from the Lord himself. Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. The Lord offers to them. He calls them. He commands them. Return to me with all your heart. He declares to his covenant people, Israel, come back, return, repent with fasting and weeping and mourning, showing those outward expressions of what's happening in their heart. But it's not just merely outward. Outward expressions of grief over sin are not bad, but, but don't just rend your garments. Don't do an outward expression of how sorry and sad you are. Rend your heart. God desires true sorrow from the heart. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on high, on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And notice the motivation for this call to repentance. Why? Why return to the Lord with all your heart? Why? You tell me. Why do we return to the Lord? Why are they to return to the Lord with all their heart? Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's who God is. Never forget that God is the mighty, holy God who will meet out unstoppable justice on sin. And he is the compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of evil God. That's who he is. It's a call to call upon his name, to call upon his character, to fling themselves upon the mercy and graciousness of God who is willing and ready to forgive all who come to him on his terms. And while Israel was right to look to God's character they're also right to not presume upon his character. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind them, behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Spoiler, spoiler alert, he will. But from their human perspective, who knows whether he will turn and relent? God is under no obligation to show grace for any reason other than his gracious choice. Our repentance doesn't make God show grace. He freely shows grace to those who repent. That is the wonder, one of the wonders of the gospel, the good news that we see even told here. And this call to individual repentance, the call to repentance extends to the whole of the people of Jerusalem. Individuals must repent. That each of us, each of them, needed to repent of their sins and return to the Lord. But the call of repentance goes out to the, all the people of, of God. They're blowing trumpets again. Verse 15, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Who should come to this? Elders, children, nursing infants, bridegroom, and bride. Take, stop the honeymoon. Come. 
Bring the little ones. Bring the kids. Bring the nursing infants. Bring the elders. And the priests, the Lord's ministers, everyone, come, come. Let us join in as the priests lead in weeping and crying out to the Lord. And what should their prayer of repentance include? Verse 17. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Notice how they are to root their cry to God in reference to his covenant relationship with them. The people of Israel were to cry out to God and say, spare your people, O Lord. We are your people. We are your inheritance. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. They not only appeal to their covenant relationship to God, but they appeal to God's right pursuit of his own glory. Look at the very end of that verse. Why should they say among the peoples? Why should they among the people say, where is their God? God, have mercy on us. Spare us so that the nations around don't wonder where you are. Show yourself mighty to save us. Oh God, our God. And does the Lord hear? Does he relent? Will he answer? You tell me. Yes, yes, he will. And that leads us to the third section of Joel, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, the day of the Lord performed. For in the, the performing of the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes, with it comes hope for restoration. Hope for restoration. As Joe continues through his prophecy, looking forward ultimately to the final eschatological day of the Lord at the end times, he shows that God has not forgotten or abandoned his covenant people, Israel. Verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land, for his people. He will be zealous for his land and he will have pity on his people. See in that verse, God's care, his right care for his own namesake, his own glory. This is his land standing in for his people. He's zealous for that. He cares deeply about it. And he has pity on his people. He is compassionate toward them. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. At the day of the Lord, the Lord will restore to them what they had lost through the plague. The, the devastation of the plague of judgment is reversed with the plenty of restoration. And not only will he bring back what is lost, but he will also take away the invading army, whether that's a, a literal army or a reference again to, uh, to a picture of locusts. The, the point being, the Lord will remove this putrid pestilence from their land. Verse 20, but I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Great things have been done. Yes, how terrible and fearful has it been, but don't fear. Verse 21, do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. The Lord has done great things. Not only has the Lord provided grain and wine and oil for his people, he's removed the invader from their land, but in the restoration, the land itself is going to become lovely again. 
Verse 22, do not fear beasts of the field for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Rejoice, so rejoice, O sons of Zion and be glad in the Lord your God for he has given you the early rain for your vindication and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Notice how we have reversed what we had. What was barrenness and, and dry is now replenished with fruitful rain. The earth, which was stripped of vegetation, is now lush and green. And not only did God just give them a little bit of, of grain, he filled their threshing floors, the place where they're measuring out and gathering the grain, and the, the vats where they would crush the grapes to make wine and oil. He didn't just give them enough. They're full and overflowing. God is not stingy in his grace to his people. Verse 25, I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent to you. Notice again how the Lord is shown to bless his people, not just in proportion to what they have lost. His, his blessing isn't a consolation prize, but he is graciously made up, replaced what has been lost totally. And God is in sovereign control of this. This was his army that he sent that he is then going to restore them from. The day of the Lord and his righteous judgment is his day. He's in control and in charge of it. It's the day of the Lord. God's people are blessed and restored with compassionate mercy, practically, but even more gloriously. There's a promise of blessing spiritually. Look at verse 26. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. Verse 27, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. God will work wondrously in mercy to forgive those who repented under his wondrous justice. Why? Why does he show this grace and restoration to them? Verse 27, to confirm to his people that he is with them. Thus, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. He has not abandoned them. The Lord has not abandoned them. He dwells with them. He is their God. They are his people. He will defend them. He will keep his covenant with them. But that's not the only spiritual blessing that comes with this restoration at the day of the Lord. Next, we see the promise of the giving of his spirit. Verse 28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Drop down to thir verse 32. But it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. As you study scripture, you will see that God the Holy Spirit is not absent from the Old Testament. He is involved in calling his people and doing the work of regeneration, etc. But we 
In the new covenant, we, after the cross and after the resurrection and after Pentecost, we enjoy, as believers, even as Gentile believers, we enjoy the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This prophecy given to Judah over 2,000 years ago, before Pentecost, was pointing forward to the day of the Lord and promise of God giving his spirit to be poured out upon them in mighty ways when they are finally restored in the day of the Lord. This passage was partially fulfilled at Pentecost. If you look at Acts chapter 2, one of the very first sermons, the very first gospel presentations given in Scripture, Peter quotes from Joel. These exact verses in 28 through 32 that we read in Joel, applying them to the outpouring of the Spirit upon the primarily Jewish disciples of Jesus gathered there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And with this promise of the Spirit in Joel, this is looking forward to a day near the end times when not just the the few gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, not just the Jews who will come to faith here and there throughout redemptive history, but a final time at the day of the Lord at the end times which we read about in places like Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There is coming a time at the day of the Lord where many, 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 many Jews, so many Jews that Paul can say in Romans 10, 26, and so all Israel will be saved. All of the remnant which God will preserve. Notice there in Joel 2, 32. And there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The Lord is going to call a remnant of Israel and all of that remnant will be saved at the day of the Lord. God is not through with the people of Israel. He is preserving for himself, for his own glory, and for their good, a remnant of the people who will receive the Spirit in this way at the day of the Lord that is coming. And that continues. Not only does the restoration of the people come with practical benefits, come from restoration of spiritual fellowship with God, but also the restoration of God's people comes with it judgment on his enemies, on the enemies of God's people, which is what we see really throughout the rest of this book in chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3, continuing in this third section, the day of the Lord performed is the day of the Lord has arrived Verse 3, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. So God is bringing the nations to the place of judgment where, continuing on in Joel, then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations doing great wickedness to God's people. Notice in verse 3, they've cast lots for his people, traded a boy for a harlot, and have sold a girl for wine that they may drink. They have taken God's people, the Jews, and sold them into slavery. 
continuing from verse 4 to verse 8, just to summarize that, we see the Lord returning onto the heads of the surrounding nations, mentioned nations such as Tyre, Sidon, standing in for Phoenicia, the regions of Philistia, the surrounding nations who have abused and oppressed God's people, that oppression the Lord is turning back onto their own heads. The nations surrounding Israel took the people of Israel and sold them into slavery, and God is going to sell into slavery those uh, surrounding nations and bring that judgment upon them. And all of this leads up to the final judgment at the day of the Lord. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather together. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Hear this call to war. Nations, come, come, bring it on. Bring it all on. All of your mighty men, bring them. You don't have weapons? Take your farm implements, plowshares and plowshares and pruning hooks, make them into weapons. Bring those weapons. Bring, bring even the weak ones that might say that they are mighty. Bring them, all of you. Come, come down for judgment. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, the valley of judgment. This is not the harvest of grain or the harvest of, of grapes, but this harvest and this wine press is a harvest at the end times when the Lord will mete out justice, when the, the wine presses of the wrath of God are filled to overflowing and the wrath of God pours out upon the nations that are set up in opposition to him. The nations are called to fight. We've, uh, if you've been uh, with us on Sunday mornings, as, as Pastor Tom has uh, recently gone through Revelation 19, you'll see what this event is pointing to. Revelation 19, the final battle between Jesus the King and the nations that have come up against him. In Revelation 19, verse 11, we read, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. It's talking about our Lord Jesus at his coming. Verse 19 of Revelation 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And, and then skipping down to verse 21. And the rest were killed as God's people carried out an amazing battle strategy. That's not what that verse says, actually. That's, that's, that's not what it says says this in Revelation 19, 21, and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Jesus the king will defeat his enemies with his words and none can stand against him. Look now at how the book of Joel concludes in verse 16 of Joel 3. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble that voice which will destroy his enemies sounds out, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy. Verse 18, continuing this picture of restoration, not only are they going to get abundance back, not only is it going to be overflowing a little bit, but there is going to be overflowing grace and blessing. And the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt, on the other hand, and Edom, they will become waste and desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And the Lord concludes his word to the people through Joel by saying, And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord, the Lord whose day is coming, the day of the Lord is coming. We see in the book of Joel the, the day of the Lord in a real historical event, a plague of locusts, the day of the Lord, the coming judgment previewed. Just a foretaste of what that devastation is going to look like. And then we see in the middle of Joel, the day of the Lord is promised. It's coming. It's near. It's not delayed. It is on schedule. It is coming. It is near. And that is then meant to drive the people of God to repentance. And God graciously responds. And then we see the day of the Lord performed as the Lord is then going to meet at the day of the Lord judgment on his enemies and blessing on his people, fulfilling his covenant promises, all the remaining covenant promises to Israel fully fulfilled, God's blessing and God's presence with his people. This book is amazing, and I wish we had all night to just keep unpacking it, but we don't. So as we begin to conclude, and don't start zipping up your Bible covers and putting your pens away, think about this. As we, as we think about what we've just heard and read, what is some application to us? Well, for believers, I want to be very clear as you study the book of Joel, as you study the rest of the Old Testament and Revelation and the history of Revelation, that we, the church, are not the Old Testament covenant people of God. The church doesn't replace Israel. God still has plans and promises for the ethnic descendants of Jacob and of Abraham. His covenant promises to his people. You know, we don't, when we turn to God in repentance, believer, we don't cry out to, to, for God to remember the, his land as the people in Joel's day and as the Jewish people will one day. No, but the call of repentance in Joel goes out to all who hear this book. To all who hear this book. This call to turn to the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, resounds through the pages of Scripture. You see it in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 45, 22, where the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And rightly does Paul write in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you, you friend, here in this room in South Lake, Texas, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches 
for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul takes this text at the heart of the book of Joel and applies it to you and applies it to me. And the offer to turn to God is is extended to you. If you do not know this God, if you do not know the God who has a day, there is something called the day of the Lord. It is fixed in redemptive history. There is a literal day in space and time that will come. Christ will come again and judge the living and the dead. And you will stand before him. And I will stand before him. And when you stand before him, will you plead before King Jesus and say, I am yours. I have turned to you. You know that I am yours. Lord, you know that I love you. Or will you merely clench your fists and cover your mouth and continue in your rebellion against King Jesus? What will your response be? If you turn, you will enjoy the blessing of restoration, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwelling with you, and the hope of new heavens and new earth one day if you will call upon the name of the Lord. And if you haven't, I invite you tonight, wherever you are right now sitting, call upon the name of the Lord. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Spare me from your justice. Make me know the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Believer, it's also important to know that the day of the Lord is coming because it should drive us to be battling sin, to pray like David in Psalm 51. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Even for those of us who have trusted upon Christ, we need to cry out to God for cleansing of the sin that accumulates in our lives. And lastly, the day of the Lord is coming and it should drive you to rejoice. It should drive us to rejoice. The Lord is coming back. He's gonna make all things new. All these pictures of 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 lush vegetation and wine and food and oil and flowing waters is but a small picture. It can't even compare to how good it's going to be when Christ returns. He's going to come back. Jesus is coming. It is more sure that Jesus will come again. The day of the Lord is more certain than I will get to my car without dying. That's how sure the day of the Lord is. It's more sure than you will wake up tomorrow or the sun will rise tomorrow. It is more sure that the day of the Lord is coming. And with the coming of our Lord is the promise that the enemies of his people will be vanquished, which is comfort to us and should be great warning because no one will get away with anything. The Lord will keep his promises to Israel. He will restore the fortunes of Israel And then we, Christian, Jew, Gentile, all of us together, we will dwell with him forever in a new Jerusalem, in new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells because Jesus will dwell with us and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh God, you are very great. You are good. Lord, forgive us for thinking. Forgive me for thinking such small thoughts of you. Forgive me for not thinking of you. God, you are great. 
And you are mighty, and you are strong, and you are powerful, and you are good, and you are merciful, and you are kind, and you are patient. That's who you revealed yourself to us in your word. Lord, may we, may we rest our whole heart upon that. May we turn to you with all our hearts. For those of us in Christ, may we return to you afresh. Renew us, God, by your spirit in our love for you. Give us a passion for your gospel. Give us a passion to spread this good news, even from the book of Joel, to the nations who need to know that their day is coming, the day of judgment, and they need to call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, whoever that offer goes out, may we hear that. I pray, Lord, there might be somebody even now, Lord, who hears that. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, please save that one right now who is here, I pray, if it be your will. In Jesus' name, oh God, thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it more. And may we not be unchanged by what we've heard tonight and seen in your word. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly, we pray. Amen.